I don't believe that I would be a writer if I wasn't deaf. I, I think that being born deaf kind of derailed me from the kind of path that, that men, of my, men in my family tend to take. My dad uh, worked for CN Rail, and my brother worked for CN Rail, and my dad's dad worked for CN Rail. So being deaf kind of took me away and steered me away from, from that path and down a more artistic and imaginative path. You're listening to Parallel Careers, where writers who also teach share the big ideas and practical tips that they take into the classroom. My name is Adam Pottle. I'm a writer who is currently based in Saskatoon, and my writing focuses chiefly on deaf and disabled characters. And I've published four books, including two works of fiction, uh, a book of poetry, and a memoir. And I've also had two plays produced. And I am currently the writer in residence at Sheridan College. A couple of different things uh, appealed to me about this position. First of all, because Sheridan is, is based in Ontario, and Ontario has a strong deaf community. I thought it would be an opportunity for me to kind of get back to the deaf community and be able to encourage more deaf and disabled writers to to tell their stories through this position. And also, of course, uh, having this opportunity would allow me to focus on my own work for a while and uh, kind of take a break from, well, not take a break from teaching, but approach teaching in a different way. because. Uh, the writer-in-residence position is more a mentorship position than it is just strictly teaching. And so I saw it as an opportunity to become a little bit more involved in that capacity. I first approached ultrasound as a poem, and because that was kind of uh, where my head was at at the time. Then I, I soon realized that uh, the voices on the page were uh, kind of, kind of uh, extended beyond line breaks and beyond enjambments, beyond verse. And so it, it felt more like a play to me than a poem. And I, I, I had very limited experience in writing a play. So I felt I needed a playwright in order to guide me in the right direction. And if that was the writer in residence, writer in residence at the time. And so uh, on a whim, I submitted it to her hoping that she would give me some advice. And of course she did. Uh, that was enormously encouraging and supportive of my work, even, even though she'd never met me before. And she could see and intuit where I was trying to take that piece. And uh, her, I found her suggestions to be enormously helpful. And one of the things that she kept saying to me, not, not just from that initial encounter, I was, uh, in her writer and residence capacity, but we also worked together on uh, on a workshop of ultrasound uh, a short time later. And one of the things that she kept saying to me was raise the stakes, raise the stakes, raise the stakes. Uh, in other words, make it more dramatic and draw more out of the characters. So that's something that I've continued to do, not just with ultrasound, but also with my own work. And I've also tried to carry those lessons that she taught me forward into my capacity as a writer in residence and just just as a writer, period, and try to engage with compassion and with encouragement and to provide to provide useful, solid advice. Leopold. 
I feel the seizure just before it arrives, like the ground vibrations of an arriving train. My jaw and neck pump together. My dry tongue's trapped. I desperately wish for water. A charge hooks up my spine. My spine hooks. My head jams against the seat. My shoulders bunch. My hands flare. I hit Peter on the knee. He's knocked out. My little teeth dig past the scar tissue in my tongue. Blood rises to my mouth ceiling. I lift my lips at the corner. I try to aim for a small, untouched portion of my tongue, lest I bite all the way through it. The bright scar tissue gives way. I hum and curl toward the wall. The smell is overwhelming in the bus. My back is hot. Everyone's voices drip down the walls onto my back. The bus is a can of sloppy braces. Manavala the Bus is a story that takes place on a single day on April 21st, 1931. And the bus is told by eight different people. Six of them are mental patients who are put into a psychiatric facility. One of the narrators is the doctor who operates the euthanasia program at a euthanasia clinic in Germany. And the last narrator is the man who runs the crematorium. The bus went through a number of different stages of creation. I started in 2008, and at that time it had just one narrator, and that was the doctor. Prior to that, I had gone to I had gone to Germany to research the novel, and I I, I visited the actual euthanasia clinic that's depicted in the bus, and the people who worked there were. It was so wonderful and so welcoming. And while I was there, I saw school groups, groups of school kids touring the euthanasia clinics. And they, they went through the shower room that was down in the basement. They went through the dissection room. They went through the hallways where they used to have the ovens in the crematorium. And they saw on display on the main level of the clinic, which is now a museum, on the main level of the clinic, they saw these displays that talked about how disabled people were thought to be burdens. They, they saw the different kinds of propaganda that was distributed throughout Germany to convince people that disabled lives are not worth living. I spent about 10 days at that clinic and in, uh, in the city where it was located. And then I came back to Canada and then I started working on the novel right away. And the first draft was much longer than what the bus is now. And I eventually landed a publishing contract for that version, but it was later judged to be too violent. And so it, it, it was never published. And so I decided to approach the story from a different way and make sure that I included uh, the people who were victimized by the Nazi's euthanasia mechanism. If a student encounters a disappointment like the one that I did, then the advice that I have to give is this. If you believe in, in the story enough, it's going to come back. If you believe in the story, then you'll carry it with you and eventually it will make its way into another form. And you just need to 
trust the process. Because if a story is worth telling, it will come out somehow. The process of writing the best from the from that first draft in 2008 to the time that it was published in 2016, it was a process of eight years. And one of the things that kept me going was the belief that the story needs to be told. And I felt that it needed to be told because of the way that we consistently undervalue disabled people. It's something that has been consistent throughout human history. You can go all the way back to ancient Greece. You can look at philosophers such as Aristotle, who thought that deaf people were basically animals who were incapable of reason. So these kinds of attitudes just continue to persist, and they persist today. I mean, you can see it in the latest genetic research. It comes from this belief that disability diminishes the quality of our lives, but it doesn't. What diminishes the quality of our lives is ableism. You know, there there are so many people, so many disabled people who experience such extreme ableism every day. They have people telling them, you know, if I was in your position, I would just kill myself. Where they, they would say, if they see a disabled people coming down the street, they would say, oh, you're so brave for being out today. And it's like, what are the choice? What are the choice do we have, right? So that kind of attitude really needs to change. And what the best does is basically show what happens when that attitude is taken to a certain extreme. Evolve. I stand at the bottom of the stairs, watching for shadows at the top. I quickly open my flask and drink. Like the doctor, most of the staff members have abandoned God's grace. An unofficial clause of the Nazi party's oath is to renounce the teachings of Christ and replace them with the new German logic. The Hitler Jugend are especially devout in this regard. They openly chastise and harass people attending church. My wife once wrote that a good friend of hers had gone home with a broken nose. They embrace the murder of so-called idiots, yet they are all idiots in their own ways. If God is gone, not only is there no hope, no empathy, and no mercy, but there is no longer a mechanism for proper judgment. We are left alone with our pettiness. We drift apart. One of the things about being deaf is that it stimulates your imagination in in unexpected ways. Because sometimes when I don't understand what somebody is saying, I'll make it up. And, And usually what I make up in my head is often far more interesting than what, <laughs> what they were actually saying. But um, but, but, but it's, it's something that's stimulated my imagination and that's just kind of carried forward into me becoming a writer. And my deafness kind of creates, creates distance, at, at least from spoken language. Basically every language is foreign to me. And it, it's also created distance for me from sign language as well, because I didn't grow up with sign language. I, I grew up in a hearing family, 
So I didn't have access to sign language when I was a kid. And I didn't really start to seriously learn American Sign Language until I was 30. I didn't grow up around deaf kids. So I didn't have access to visual language the way that other deaf kids might have. So I was I was put through speech therapy. And I was put through speech therapy because because in, in English doesn't feel familiar to me. So I have to kind of adjust my tongue and, and adjust the way that I think uh, and experience language in order to in order to speak it properly and, and in order to engage with it. So the way that I'm speaking to you now is the product of years of speech therapy, and which is basically kind of like kicking your tongue and stringing it out on rack and uh, treating your tongue like taffy. It's, it's given me this different perspective of language and this, this kind of hyper awareness of language. And I'm, I'm very care, I'm very careful with how I choose my words because I have to be, uh, not, not just as a result of my deafness, but um, because some words are just difficult for me to say uh, as a result of uh, my speech impediment. And, uh, but also we should be careful with how we speak anyway. It's just common sense. That aspect is thankfully just built into me naturally as a result of my being deaf. Silence does not necessarily mean nothingness. Silence carries many meanings. It signifies peace and safety, the quiet of armistice. It is the lack of a voice and the trace of a voice. It unsettles us and discomforts us. It suggests death, it suggests contemplation. It is often interpreted as indicating complicity or agreement especially in dictatorial regimes. It is a method of rebellion, of refusing to testify against or speak in favor of those in power. It can function as a shield and as a weapon. It can imply guilt and innocence. It unfolds us when we pray and worship. It surrounds us when we create. For me as a writer, silence is both an ally and an enemy. On the page, it is both the space between words and a way of speaking. Silence can speak more profoundly than any word. Sometimes the things we want to say the most can't and shouldn't be shaped into words. Uh, my memoir of race is basically uh, a memoir about my experiences growing up deaf but in a hearing family and how my deafness has shaped me as a writer when i first started writing voice i had an entirely other plan for for the memoir and what i what i was planning to do was i wanted to write i wanted to write it uh, symbolically speaking i didn't want to write about my like specific experiences in childhood or anything like that i just wanted to write write a symbolic memoir for example, I wanted to I wanted to start with that scene in the booth at the at the hearing test clinic, but then I wanted uh, the ceiling to come off. I wanted to have me like battling against these monsters. Like there would be a giant mouth over here that would represent uh, autism, and then uh, there would be uh, like kind of like a, almost like a forest of hands 
of, uh, of signing hands that would be uh, it would be like kind of very beautiful, but it didn't quite work out like that. <laughs> but I knew that I had to kind of introduce, kind of introduce something else into the memoir rather than just me talking about my experience. I liked, I, I wanted to have uh, color commentary, so to speak. And I thought, well, who's more colorful than Lemmy from Motorhead? Uh, I'd, I'd seen numerous interviews uh, with Lemmy and I couldn't really hear his voice, but people told me that he wasn't, he, he's not exactly uh, easy to understand. And so that, that aspect of it kind of appealed to me because sometimes I myself am not easy to understand. And also because Lemmy passed away because before I could get a chance to see Motorhead. And so I wanted to, I wanted to meet him, if only in my imagination. One exercise that I think is particularly beneficial, especially right now, is um, I ask a student, the students to write a paragraph to a page describing themselves, but from the perspective of a loved one or their best friend. And what this does is this does a few things. One, it, it allows them to see themselves from somebody else's perspective. And it, it also allows them to see themselves from a perspective of somebody who loves them. It's an enormously empowering and uplifting thing. For me, if a student feels, feels encouraged, especially during the, the pandemic right now, if, if a student feels, feels motivated and feels encouraged and wants, wants to keep creating as, as a result of speaking to me, then I can start without a victory especially right now, because it's so difficult to create right now. It's so difficult to stir up the momentum. And it's, it's, it's something that I, must, I myself have, have experienced. So if, if I can get, uh, if, if, if a student feels encouraged and, uh, and, and feels motivated as a result of talking to me, I consider that a victory. The Black Drum is a deaf musical, which means that all the music comes from, it comes out of the body. It's not uh, something that's uh, based on sound. The, deaf, the, the, uh, the black drum suggests this idea that music is not just something you hear, it's something that you feel and can see. And when I was asked to write this play, I, I was struck by this idea of a deaf musical, because to many people that sounds like it, it sounds like a paradox. It sounds uh, like a contradiction, but but it's not. It's uh, deaf deaf people can experience music. I mean, I, I I myself listen to music, but I just experience it differently than other people might. You know, we, we can feel the bass. We can. Uh, some people uh, have certain levels of hearing that allows them to hear. They may only hear the guitars, or they may only hear the drums, but. Um, we need to kind of dispel with this idea that deaf people don't experience music because we do. And what what happened was I wrote the script and I I went through many, many, many drafts of that script. And the script ended up being a kind of a blueprint for the director and the actors and the choreographers because written English, written English does not translate into sign language directly. 
So my script was more of a blueprint that kind of dictated the character's motives and where the story was going to go. Each actor created these, these magnificent compositions that drew the music out of their own natural rhythm. And it was, uh, it was a wonderful thing to experience. It, it can be very difficult for disabled artists and for deaf artists to find opportunities to share their work. And so I'm hoping, and this all ties back to that question of accessibility. I'm hoping that we support more disabled artists, whether it's through funding, whether it's through opportunities, whether it is through, uh, through publishing and uh, uh, providing profiles on disabled artists here in Canada, because the work that disabled artists are creating is incredibly innovative. The reason for that is because creativity is a necessity for a disabled life, because we often have to get creative when the world around us is not built for us. So we have to find different ways of moving through the world. I've said this time and time again, and it's and the reason I say it is because it's true. The first major publisher and the first major film studio or the first major art gallery that really and truly recognizes the potential of disabled artists is going to experience a tremendous financial and cultural windfall because disabled people make up a quarter of the population. And that's a quarter of the population that is not reached artistically speaking, on a regular basis. You know, the TV shows that we watch, the books that we read, they very seldom engage with disability. But if we can start to do that on a more regular basis, it's going to completely blow things open. And a lot of publishers, a lot of reviewers, a lot of editors are going to say, where has where this person been? I can't, I can't believe this. Like, where has this person been all my life? And disabled people are just going to say, well, no shit, <laughs> we, we, we've always been here. You just haven't been paying attention. You've been listening to Parallel Careers, which is produced by myself, Claire Tayson, in partnership with the New Quarterly Literary Magazine. Aaron McIndoe Sproul is our technical producer and story editor. Financial and in-kind support was provided by the Region of Waterloo Arts Fund, St. Jerome's University, and the Government of Canada. The music you heard on this episode was composed by Amadeo Ventura. You can hear more of his music at amadeoventura.weebly.com. Visit tnq.ca slash parallel for more information on Adam's work, including his memoir, Voice, Adam Pottle on Writing with Deafness. There you can also listen to outtakes from this episode and check out more teaching and writing tips. Thanks for listening. <laughs>